Good morning, everybody. Thank you for those of you who are joining online or however you might be listening today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a brand new sermon series, three weeks on Romans chapter 8. And as we dive into an incredible chapter of your scriptures, may we have eyes to see how beautiful you are, minds to comprehend the greatness of what you offer, and hearts and hands that respond in ways that bring you glory. And however we might be listening today, may your Holy Spirit work in each one of our lives to bring us closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. The same beggar sat behind the same restaurant every night. He was a regular there. The staff knew him by name, Joe. Joe wasn't mean, he wasn't scary, he wasn't overly aggressive. He just came to that same restaurant every night, half an hour before close, in hopes of getting a meal. He wore an oversized blue flannel jacket. His jeans weren't threadbare, but they were a little bit dirty. The worst part of his appearance was probably the fact that his shoes weren't quite holding together. Like most homeless people, he had a little bit longer, scraggly hair. He had a hat that he covered it with and a long beard. But it was Joe. And if one of the guests left a little bit too much food on the plate, the kitchen staff would set something aside for him and make sure he had something to eat every night at 10.30. But then one day, something interesting happened. He didn't show up behind the restaurant. He showed up in front of the restaurant. And it wasn't 10.30 at night. It was Thursday evening at 8 o'clock. He was still dressed in his oversized blue flannel jacket. He still on, had on his grubby blue jeans, but he had a big smile. And he said to the hostess, today is my birthday, and I have been saving up for a few months so I could finally eat on the inside of this restaurant. The hostess was more than pleased to sit Joe down and gave him his very own table. Soon the server came by and took his drink order and said, Joe, the buffet is yours. Enjoy. Joe couldn't believe his eyes. He had eaten the food there every night. He knew it was delicious, but when he saw the buffet spread out in front of him, he was amazed. Warm dinner rolls, several different types of pasta, baked potatoes with all the fixings, salad upon salad upon salad, mixed veggies and cheeses and meats from the best delis in town. That wasn't even the main course. There was stew and ribs and chicken wings. There was pizza and dumplings and steak. Everywhere he turned more and more food until he couldn't begin to imagine what he would see next. After piling his plate as high as he dared, he made his way back to his table to enjoy his birthday feast. At about halfway through his meal, the general manager came by and he said, Joe, how is everything tasting? And Joe, with his mouth full of food, said, it is delicious. I'm glad I saved up so I could finally eat inside this restaurant. Then the manager looked at him and said, Joe, you don't have to pay for this meal. Your dad is the owner of the restaurant. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be doing a mini-series on Romans chapter 8, and we're calling it Not Alone. So often we settle for leftovers, not realizing that there is a banquet spread in front of us. And our hope today is that today and over the next two Sundays, you get to see how great a feast is that we are being offered. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It's one of the most theologically robust books in the Bible. The depth of thought, the richness of insight have given pastors and scholars and Bible teachers countless sermons, papers, books, and classes to think about. I have commentaries on Romans that are so thick that I think if I'm going to drop them on my desk, it'll shatter the whole thing. And then you have authors who say this entire theological treatise can be explained in three words. 
saved by grace. Today in just 17 verses, we're going to cover some major theological themes like regeneration, sanctification, and adoption. So how do we put it all together? Seven words that some of you might even recognize as a song title. It's even better than the real thing. One of our biggest evangelism tools here at Ellerslie is the use of the Alpha Course, where we invite our friends to come and explore what Christianity has to offer through interactive videos and conversation. And if this interests you, it's not too late to sign up. You can go to erbc.ca slash alpha. Well, one of the questions that Alpha asks in their advertising is this. Is there more to life than this? Is there more to life than going to work, having a hobby, watching some Netflix, and hanging out with friends and family? And I absolutely believe there is. There's a life that this world has to offer. And then there's a life that God has to offer. It's even better than the real thing. We start with the freedom of spirit, uh, freedom in the spirit. And this is Romans chapter eight, verses one to four. Therefore, writes Paul, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. What the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Like I said, it can be a little bit heady stuff, so allow me to make it simple. No sin we ever commit, past, present, or future, can prevent us from being saved. Do you understand why people call this good news? There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're already starting to argue with me in your mind and saying, Dave, you have no idea what I've done. I've sabotaged my business partner. You're forgiven. I've cheated on my spouse. You're forgiven. I've spoken poorly, Dave, of you, of Mel, and of the rest of the church. We forgive you and God forgives you. I yell and I scream at my kids in quarantine. I'm addicted to pornography and I haven't told anybody yet. I've been lying at work. All God says, you're forgiven. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And like we celebrated last week during Easter Sunday, that he lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and rose from the dead three days later. If you believe that, you are forgiven. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the doctrine of regeneration. You've been given new life through a second birth. This is the freedom of the Holy Spirit. This is proof that you're not alone. This is even better than the real thing. Everybody needs the gospel. Some of us might read this and go, well, Dave, yeah, I know my sins in the past are forgiven. I know my sins in the present are forgiven. But what about my sins in the future? We're saved for now, but if we're going to sin again, do we need to keep continuing to ask forgiveness over and over and over again? No, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As bad as we might think our sins are, God's grace is even greater and covers all of those sins. This passage actually uses legal language. Imagine yourself standing before the court and you have committed some sort of detestable heinous crime 
and you know that what you deserve is a lifetime in prison. And the judge looks you in the eye and says, you will not be punished. He speaks it in the negative, but wow, is that ever positive news. No longer are we staring to a face of an unrelenting judge who will condemn us to death. We are looking into the face of a family member who is more gracious, more loving, more caring than we can even begin to imagine. All of us, however, while listening to this message, have fallen short, but Jesus hasn't. He met every requirement of the law so that we might receive his freedom. A number of years ago, I was part of a church that did a whole sermon series on law and order. And we looked at the first five books of the Bible and the 613 laws that make up the Jewish structure. Here's what we learned, and hopefully it'll be a little bit of benefit to you as well. There's actually three types of law in the first five books of the Bible. Here they are. The moral law. The moral law applies to all people in all situations at all times. To give you an example of what that looks like, you can find in Leviticus chapter 18, all of these laws on how we're supposed to act in regards to sexuality. Those laws that he gave to the Israelites well over 3,000 years ago are still in effect today. The second part of that law is the ceremonial law. It's everything associated with the temple, everything associated with the priests, everything surrounding Passover and sacrifice and everything that goes along with that. The third part of the law is something called the civil law, and it's time and space dependent. For example, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, it says, you shall build a parapet around the roof of your house. Basically, build a railing. Here in Edmonton, Alberta, we don't really have railings on top of our house but we do around our decks. And here's what's amazing. Have you ever heard the phrase, Jesus Christ is our prophet, our priest, and our king? As the prophet, he brings God to the people. And Jesus himself is God dwelling among us. And he has completely fulfilled the moral law. As a priest, the role is to bring the people to God. And he completely fulfills the ceremonial law. And as the king, he brings God's rule and authority to all people. And he has completely fulfilled the civil law. Here's the good news of Jesus for all people. Everyone who believes in Jesus is saved. This is the freedom of the Holy Spirit. We are not alone. It's even better than the real thing. The Apostle Paul continues in verses 5 to 8. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. We could summarize these verses like this. Your life is shaped by whatever preoccupies your mind. Let's be honest, a a crisis just shines a spotlight on who we really are. Are we naturally gracious? During this time, we're going to be even more gracious. Do we believe in conspiracy theories? Oh my goodness, and you have a lot at your disposal. Do you love spending time with your family? You're given even more time to do that. But if you struggle with your kids, this is a really challenging time. What God is encouraging us to do through this passage is to focus on the right things and begin to experience the freedom that comes through the Holy Spirit. 
one of the questions that often comes up when I have conversations like this goes something like the following. Dave, I believe in Jesus, and I'm here serving my family. My buddy is a great guy. He doesn't go to church, but he's arguably even a better husband and father than I am out there serving his family. What's the difference? It's an excellent question. How do we know our heart and our motives are in the right place? The same man who wrote to the uh, church in Rome also wrote to a church in Galatia. And here's what we read in Galatians 1 verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. The answer to that first sentence is, whose approval are you seeking? Are you a good spouse because a happy wife is a happy life? or because you deeply want to show the love of God? Are you working hard so you can afford a nice vacation and a nice home? Are you working hard to put your gifts and talents into action? Here's a good one. Do you work in kids ministry because it's the right thing to do? Or because you want to see the kids come to know, love, and serve Jesus as their king? Your life is shaped by whatever preoccupies your mind. But here's the beauty in it all. The more we love our spouse the way God loves the church, the more our spouse begins to flourish. The more we use our gifts and talents at work, the likelihood is that we're going to receive good things. And the more we want to see kids come to love Jesus, the more we get excited about serving in kids' ministry. Are you beginning to see the freedom that we have in the life of the Spirit? Here's a visual that might help you out. There's two different cycles that I want to show you, a grief cycle and a grace cycle. The grief cycle starts like this. We begin by what we've achieved. Our achievement can be almost anything, and that's in what we find our identity. I have twin sisters, and my mom would often introduce me and my two sisters like this. Here's Dave and Chrissy and Wendy. She's the nice one. Now we laugh, but here we are 30 years later and we all remember that. Mom says Wendy's the nice one and she probably is. Achievement can be absolutely anything. You're cute, you're smart, you can build great things, you're good at tech, you're good at video games, you're funny, you're a good speaker, you're good with animals, you're a great musician. It can be absolutely anything and it quickly becomes your identity. Your identity starts to drive you. If you're known as the cute one, you start spending more time on your looks, more time in the mirror, more time in the gym. If you're known as a great intellect, you work hard because you want to be known as a great intellect forever. And the moment that that is challenged, the moment you get the acceptance from that, you recognize how incredibly fragile it is. If you're known as a great sales rep, what happens the moment a better sales rep comes into the company? If you're one of the top players on your hockey team, what happens when you get somebody else as a teammate? And they're even better than you are. It becomes temporary and fragile. But the cycle of grace is much different. It starts with acceptance rather than ending there. Not because we've done anything, but because God's love is absolutely, incredibly unconditional. It's through that love that we are sustained by the very work of the Holy Spirit. We are not alone, but rather have the Holy Spirit working in us to accomplish great work. We receive our identity as sons and daughters of the Most High King. And because of that, we work hard to glorify Him and serve Him well. This is what the freedom of the Spirit looks like.
and it's even better than the real thing. A freedom in the spirit helps makes us alive in the spirit. Here's verses 9 to 11. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Already this morning, I've mentioned a couple theological terms in passing. Here's the first one, regeneration. Simply put, it means new life. It's where our phrase born again comes from. Take another look at verses 10 and 11 and you'll read this. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin and your spirit alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And it doesn't get any better than that. You are not alone. The spirit of God is dwelling inside of you. My family lives in a new development and I have a couple little boys. So we really enjoy walking around and seeing these new uh, homes get built. We enjoy seeing a crane come in and putting the trusses on a house. We enjoy seeing a backhoe come and dig a new hole. And I can only think, you know, I'd like to try driving one of those backhoes. And I could probably figure out how the arms work and the swivel work and how the scoop works, but I wouldn't be very good at it. I've never done it before and I'd probably end up doing something like this. And that's kind of what our lives are like. If we continue to think that we can do this on our own without the true operator doing what he knows how to do, it's not going to be successful at outcome. I want to point out one more thing before we move to verses 12 and 13. Notice in verse 9 how Paul says, we have both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ alive in us. Not only have we been saved from death unto life, but we are brought into a brand new family. We have been unified with Christ, adopted as children of God, and changed forever. Nobody can just walk up to the President of the United States at 2 a.m. in the morning and ask for a glass of water. But his four-year-old daughter can. We are invited as children of God to approach the throne of God at any time with any concerns and all of our praises. This is what life in the spirit looks like. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Over the course of history, whether we're talking about the ancient Near East and Israel going into Canaan, which is the promised land, whether we think of first century Rome to the people that Paul is writing, or even over the last few hundred years as we've seen slavery abolished, an interesting thing starts to happen. Even after slaves receive their freedom, they choose to stay with that same master. Not all of them, of course, but some of them. How many of us, having been saved from our old way of life, are acting like nothing has changed and continue to serve the world that we've just been saved from? 
there comes a point where people look at you both inside and outside the church and say, that person says he's a Christian, but he hasn't changed at all. If you have a reputation among friends and family of being a jerk, maybe it's because you're a jerk. If people aren't trusting you and coming to you and confiding in you and asking for your counsel, maybe it's because they know you're a gossip. And if your kids complain that you yell too much at home, maybe it's because if they listened the first time, we wouldn't have to yell. Just needed to get that off my chest. If the first part of our message is about regeneration, the second part is about sanctification. Simply put, it means this. Turning from sin and becoming more like Jesus. I think it's really interesting that it's not until verse 13 that we're actually told to do something. The first 12 verses of Romans chapter 8 is all about what God has done for us. It's God who pardons us. It's God who sends his son. It's Jesus Christ who comes to fulfill the law, who dies for our sins and rises from the dead three days later. It's the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us, counsel us, and give us life. Finally, we arrive at the role that we're supposed to play. And since all of us who follow Jesus are loved and accepted by him unconditionally, since we are brought into a brand new family and receive identity as children, as the most high king, we are reminded that we are no longer orphans, but part of an incredible family. As children of God, we're expected to look more like our heavenly father. As children of God, we're expected to look like Jesus, who is our ultimate older brother. Which brings us back to this idea of sanctification. Again, sanctification is twofold. We turn our back on sin and we become more like Jesus. Let me give you an example of what that might look like. Let's say you smoke a lot of weed. After a year of battling and journeying with a couple of friends, you can finally say, friends, over the last month, I have not smoked any weed. And your friends are excited and they're happy for you, but you haven't actually moved anywhere. You then go on to say, but I have started smoking crack. Well, you've turned your back on one sin, but you haven't turned towards anything. You've stopped looking at pornography, but you still treat women poorly. You've stopped stealing from work, but you still complain about everything your boss gives you. Sanctification is turning your back on something and turning towards something else. It looks something like this. I'm turning my back on watching too much TV, and I'm going to spend more time with my neighbors. I've turned my back on speaking poorly of others, and I'm going to speak well of them. I've turned my back on how I'm going to poorly use my money, and I'm going to give some to the church and those who need it most during this difficult time. If we want to experience life in the spirit, we need to turn our back on sin and turn towards Jesus Christ. And I'm sure you know that application that's coming. What do you need to stop doing? What is it that you need to stop doing? Do you have a bad attitude? Have you been moping around your house and just complaining about this quarantine? When you think about your words, do they tear people down? Or do they build others up? Have you fallen into bad habits or bad behaviors over the last month? A few weeks ago, I took a little mini vacation. And I may or may not have eaten three pints of ice cream all by myself. And if you're thinking, Dave, you didn't do it, I sure did. Chocolate brownie, score, 
and they both tasted so good, I had chocolate brownie score mixed together. It was delicious. And then I looked in the mirror and I thought, that's not the way I want my body to look. And so over the last few weeks, I've stopped eating as much fatty foods, still have a little bit, and I've started exercising much more regularly. What do you need to stop doing? What do you need to start doing? Do your kids, whatever their age, young, teenagers, full-grown adults, need your attention? Do you need to call your friends and check in on them and see how they're doing? Is it time to begin or strengthen your daily prayer and Bible reading? Is this the time to join an online small group? And I'm going to give it a plug. If you're not a part of a small group or a triad where a group of three to five people meet together, this is the perfect time to try it. If you don't like your leader, you can just log off online. You don't have to see them anymore. It's great. You can connect with us at erbc.ca slash groups. Is doing this work? Absolutely it is. But you are not alone. The Holy Spirit is at work in you and calling you to something greater. And I'm telling you right now, it's even better than the real thing. The last part of our message this morning is adopted through the Spirit. My friends, listen to how good this news is. This is Romans 8, 14 to 17. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. Forgive me, but you're going to hear a few stories about my kids. Just last week, my oldest son, he's six years old, said, Daddy, why are you a pastor? And I looked at him and I said, Beckham, I get to spend my whole life telling people about Jesus or equipping people to tell others about Jesus. There's no other way I want to spend my life. The one who created the universe The one who spoke matter into being is saying to everybody, will you become a child of mine? And worship as an adopted child is the great high king. Take another look at verse 15. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear, but a spirit of sonship. There is nothing to fear. We are not alone. We have been gifted and adopted the opportunity to become children of God. I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He writes, The notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. We are no longer slaves to fear, but have an incredible, glorious king as our father. I told you a story about my six-year-old. Here's a story about my two-year-old. Obviously, I'm biased, but I think she's incredibly cute. And whenever I come home from work, whenever I see her after not having seen her for a few hours, she runs to me as fast as she can with arms outstretched saying, Daddy, 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 Daddy. Just yesterday, I pulled into my garage, and for the first time, this hasn't happened before. I'm like, 
My kids had seen me from the upstairs window. They ran downstairs, opened the door going from our house into the garage, and all three of them were standing there with beaming faces, smiles wide, yelling, Daddy's home! Daddy's home! We have nothing to fear, but we are accepted by a great and glorious king. That's the picture of sonship. That's the picture of joy. There is an image where fear is not present. The invitation that all of us have, it's an invitation to something better. If you've listened to me more than a couple times, you know that I love learning about the context in which the letter or the book was written. And here's what I learned about the idea of adoption. In the first century, an adopted son was deliberately chosen and usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir for his estate. I love this sentence. Think about that one line, deliberately chosen. And a little side note for you here, we have some really great resources on our website. If you go to erbc.ca slash sermons, uh, you'll find all the slides for the day. Uh, you'll find uh, uh, questions to talk about as well as the sermon-based readings. And one of the readings this week comes from Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians chapter 1 gives us this idea of deliberately chosen. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans, also wrote the book of Ephesians. And he says this in the opening verses. You have been deliberately chosen. You have been predestined. You have been picked out before the world was even created. God chose you. And do you know who chose you? A very wealthy adult. Don't we all hope that we are part of some inheritance in which a rich relative just suddenly gives us money that we never expect? We'd pay off our home or we'd buy a new one. We'd buy a fancy car. We'd go on the vacation of our dreams. And God is giving us something even better. It really happened. And it's better than the real thing. Roads paved with gold. Beautiful magnificent homes to call our own and a seat at the banqueting table every single day. Relationships won't be marred by sin. Unlimited access to the Father. Absolutely awesome. At the moment of adoption, here's what happens. Old debts and legal obligations are, are paid. You receive a new name and instant access to all the father has. The father becomes liable for the child's actions. And the child has the obligation to honor and please the father. Now, if you're sitting at home going, is he talking about first century Rome? Or about what happens when we become followers of Jesus? Both. The Holy Spirit not only makes us God's children, he reminds us that we are God's children. My friends, the gospel is for everybody. The good news is a reminder to all people. The good news is a reminder to Christians that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will inherit eternal life. The good news comes from Jesus Christ, that he leaves the throne room of heaven on a rescue mission, that Jesus Christ, who had no sin, became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Holy Spirit gives us such good news that he is a permanent resident living inside our lives, convicting, of, convicting us of sin, pointing us towards holiness, and equipping us to do great works. This is the good news, even better than the real thing. And maybe you're watching online. A friend told you to check us out. You've just stumbled onto a Baptist church. 
perhaps you know somebody who attends here and you're thinking, I'm not a follower of Jesus yet. A couple of things. One, would you like to be? After hearing how good this news is, are you sitting there in your living room, driving in your car, doing chores, or however you might be listening, thinking, I want me some of that. Would you be willing to pray a prayer? Would you be willing to join Alpha on Thursday nights and explore what that looks like? You can do so at erbc.ca slash alpha. We would love to have you join our team. Maybe it's a little bit of both. And wherever you are, whatever you're doing, would you pray that prayer with me? It goes like this. Heavenly Father, what you promise sounds absolutely amazing. I know that I have fallen short and I ask that you would forgive me for my sins. I believe that you sent your son, Jesus. I believe that he died and rose again. And I believe all of this is true and want to be part of the family. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family. I would love to receive your email. You can easily find my name on our website. This is what life in the spirit looks like. We are not alone. And it's even better than the real thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a chapter like Romans 8. And thank you that we get to spend two more weeks in this, learning about what it means to have life in the Spirit, knowing what it means to have life in the Father, knowing what it means to have life in Jesus. Please forgive us for when we have fallen short. And fill us with your Spirit so that we might not do so again but rather live a life that brings you much glory. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.